Welcome to the ASAP podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We have a somewhat more relaxed intro now, but we are still hoping to provide you with thought-provoking and stimulating conversations with researchers from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the world. As always, you can find out more about us at www.acid-science.com. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Amal Unali. Thanks a lot for joining us on the ACID Science Podcast. Thank you for considering me. So I'm just going to start with a short introduction on your background. You're currently studying for your Master of Law at the University of Geneva and currently doing an exchange at the University of Utrecht where you are focusing on criminal law in a European and transnational context. So you are focusing your, your career on the law and questions of the law, which is obviously a huge topic, but maybe is a very general question and introduction. What fascinates you about the law and what made you focus your study in that direction? Well, now we live in democratic countries, both of us, and I think that law in general really reflects our societies. But at the same time, what is, I think, fascinating about the law is that it reflects but doesn't reflect it at the same time because we have all those changes that happen. We have uh, we vote on a regular basis to change our laws. So I think this constant change, which reflects and don't reflect society, can be super interesting about the law. And, and also since law is regulating how we live and law is regulating the society in general or civil societies, it is the first step for a change. And then we have the second step, which is enforcing and practicing the respect of this law. But the first step, which is the law, can be quite interesting. And, you know, to see how, uh, from where we went to where we go, for instance, we had uh, women who were given the right to vote, or when we had racial discrimination, which became a criminal offense. And the complexity and social aspects of the law are, for me, what are the most interesting about this topic. And that's why I I think from quite a young age, I decided to go toward this field. Yeah, that's actually like an interesting perspective, perspective on the law to my mind, which is like usually are in the in older societies and law was kind of equated with being set in stone. You have the Ten Commandments in Christianity and the Codex Hammurabi, for example. But now we have societies that are moving and transforming at a much faster pace. So kind of this mm -hmm. idea of law being the fundament of, of society that is like um, lasts for a longer time than the typical generation is kind of overthrown because each generation, like the world is transforming at such a pace that the law really needs to keep pace as well. Yeah. And, and what actually a critique that we give a lot to the law is that it's not transforming fastly enough like it's you know like the basic example that we always give is how for instance in switzerland women were giving the right to vote in 1971 which was quite recent and like even the last region in switzerland to give the right to vote was in 1991 which, which is very recent and that's the the most critique we usually give to the law is that it takes way too much time to actually change and be um and be actually in accordance with our societies and that's why i all i also say that in a time like <clears throat> in one hand it actually reflects the society we live in but also at the same time it doesn't yeah 
reminds me also in the US in the Supreme Court, you have like very different election cycles, like the judges get voted mm -hmm. in for life. And then sometimes you have the same people for 30 years. And there's obviously not as much. Yeah, it's not the inflow. same as the new judges. <laughs> <laughs> like not a big influx of new ideas. And I think maybe in older societies, maybe that made more sense to, to keep some kind of yeah, like consistency across time. Mm. And maybe to, to already move off script, off script a little bit, is there, do you see like, things transforming in the, like in how law is practiced and how laws are like, given by different new institutions? And is there like attempts to, to make this, this whole process more flexible and more fast paced? Well, actually, I don't feel like there are a lot of changes on this particular topic because how law is adopted is quite um, rigid. Like in every country, it's different. Like for instance, in Switzerland, uh, it is practically direct democracy, while in France, it's indirect democracy. So we don't vote on absolutely everything. I think in Germany is also indirect democracy. So law change slowly, and it doesn't appear that we really want to Uh, not we as me and you, but we in general don't really want to change how it is adopted. So we have uh, civil movements a bit everywhere, but it doesn't appear to be, um, yeah, it doesn't appear to give any results right now. So it's quite graved in stone how law is adopted and how it's going to, to, to Yeah, just how law is adopted. Unfortunately, actually, because it can be way quicker, but actually it's not. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like a also a typical critique of bureaucracy when, when too many yeah, yes. <laughs> things, things yes. have to move, like very rigid structures. Like the rigid structure is like on one hand, uh, like a security for you to be sure that everything will go in a smooth way because it goes every time from like the same steps. It takes the same route every time. But also at the, on the other hand, like, I, like we just said before, it takes way too much time sometimes and you just need something to, to go to be quicker. Yeah, it also sounds like the typical struggle between conservatism and like leftist liberalist thinking which tends to want to open up boundaries and the conservatives mm, yeah. <laughs> like said, kind of want to keep keep things as they are and probably in the law sector there's more conservatism from from what i would like naturally expect i don't know if that's actually the case maybe mm -hmm. it also depends on the discipline yeah also I guess one of the things you are also looking at a lot is international law and probably there are also some interesting interactions between laws on, on the national scale, on the international scale and like maybe also in the European context especially. So yeah, the first topic we were planning to talk about is like you're currently looking more into international criminal law and mm -hmm. so maybe you can pinpoint where the idea of international law kind of originates and what the main institutions currently responsible for upholding this kind of idea are? Uh, well, I think international law appeared like in how we know it today, like in the 17th century, mid 17th century, 
because little by little countries realized that they do not exist alone. So they needed each other for uh, certain aspects, certain topics like security, uh, like economy, like their economy also needed to cooperate with other countries. So at some point they created international law little by little by cooperating with each other instead of just living by themselves because they cannot, like they don't have the resources they need to, to fully exist. So that's how it originated little by little. Like it didn't come uh, how we know it today. All of a sudden it, it's a huge, uh, I think they took a huge route to actually come to what they are today, like what international law is today. And you even have, for instance, the European Union. So they created uh, the EU to actually work together and to form uh, the, this massive group where you have, you know, like the internal market where people can, you know, just cross borders, etc. because they need it for uh, their internal, like how the, the countries need to work internally. And the, about the main institutions, you, you, you have a lot of institutions. You have, as I said, the European Union, you have the NATO, you have the UN, uh, you have uh the american organization if i'm not wrong you have the african organization too like you have organization all around the world you don't have only one maybe the u like the un is the biggest one which represents most of the countries not all but most of them and yeah within th then within these organizations you have other institutions which will work on different fields and topics of the law and of societies yeah. So, yeah, I think the UN that you mentioned is probably most dedicated to the international cause, uh, international cause, like mm -hmm. by, by its design. And yeah, so you, you have these big institutions, but then you also have like the idea of having an international court. So really applying the law on a wider international. Um, yeah, the off your international court, you have the... Um the International Court of Justice, which is in The Hague, in the Netherlands. You have the International Criminal Courts. Then you also have, for instance, the European Court of Human Rights, which is for this very specific topic of human rights. And within the European Council, uh, you have also the Inter-American Court. You have the African Court. Like You have several courts by region and also by field of law. Yeah, so now going maybe more directly into this direction of, of criminal law and international criminal law. So what is actually the court, for example, in Den Haag dealing with and what are some, some examples of, of things they are thinking about and dealing with? So the International Criminal Court is only dealing with certain categories of, of, of offenses which are considered to be the worst offenses known to humanity. So there are genocides, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and um, aggression, crimes of aggression. So those are the crimes which are, uh, which are dealt with in the International Criminal Court, and they only deal with that. But also the International Criminal Court is subsidiary to national courts. So it means that national courts should first try to um, punish these offenses and the criminal court only acts as a second court, let's say, when it doesn't like it doesn't work on a national level. 
Yeah, I remember in the context of the Balkan wars, there was also a lot of like topics touching on, on genocide and crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. But as it was really, I mean, you even have the, the word Balkanized. So the whole conflict was really um, defined by nationalistic tendencies. So you wouldn't really expect naively the, the courts of the national on the national level to to punish the perpetrators. This case was so special that actually the, the UN created a special court for the ex-Yugoslavia uh, case. So you have the International Criminal Court for ex-Yugoslavia, which don't work today. I think its mandate is, all, is over. Uh, it's like for Rwanda. They did the same for Rwanda. They have a special criminal court uh, to punish the, the crimes there. And yeah, the this court in you for Yugoslavia was just for the, the those crimes, so crimes against humanity, uh, genocide, war crimes, etc. Only for those crimes which happened in this area during a certain period of time, because it was such a complex and special situation that they had to actually make a special tr- tribunal for it. And if I'm not wrong, they also trying or thinking at least about making one for Syria, but it didn't have, like, there are no results yet, but I think it's, it's in discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this report from Amnesty coming out in recent times, which really documented the torture going on in Syrian prisons, so. Did you look into one of those cases in Yugoslavia or Rwanda in a bit more detail, like maybe seeing what the kind of problems are when you when you do these kind of trials on an international level? Well, all the trials in this in those fields, because it's such a specific offenses, uh, all those trials are pretty hard and heavy. Because also, how to get evidence in this uh, in yeah in these cases, how to get them or how to punish them and how to get your witnesses, how to protect the witnesses, etc. Those are specific topics which also have to be dealt with in international courts, criminal courts. Uh, and also the novelty was that they had to interpret the law in such a way so they can also punish those crimes and those offenses. So uh, they had to say, how can we define a war crime? and which aspects of the crimes, which acts actually that which happened at the time in this area can be uh, interpreted as a war crime or constituting a war crime. For instance, if you um, if you killed uh, the, the 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 chief of a tribute is not the same of killing a lambda person, and like maybe one will be assessed as a war crime and not the other. Yeah, in the context of Rwanda, there was, I think, also the issue that it was such a horrible thing and that it completely changed the landscape of Rwanda. And really after that, basically everyone was guilty to some degree because they they killed 10% of the population in less than a year, that it was really difficult to punish people and to, to more aim at ideas like reconciliation. So maybe that's also an interesting question, whether it's actually... Yeah, like this idea of punishment, maybe that's also a more general question about the law itself. Like, 
what actually the the point of of punishing people is if it's if it contains some implicit like ideas of like redemption and retribution that are more bound in in a christian context for example if it's actually uh if you can define it more in a secular way for example in on the international level well the um... Actually, well, what happened in yeah, actually, what happened in Rwanda was also quite complex. I think it was the court also was created before uh, the one of ex ex Yugoslavia, and yeah, at some point it just everything just becomes so complex because you have countries which actually were present during in this time during this this particular and yeah during this particular time. So you also have to take them into account. Uh, you also have, you know, like, yeah, actually how to define who did what. And sometimes even the offenders are, are dead. So how to actually punish someone who is already dead. All of these questions arose in criminal courts. And even in, in national courts, you can you can ask the same questions for national cases. It's not the, the those questions are, are not singular to, to those uh, particular crimes. Yeah, if you have these international criminal cases you mentioned, then you have the issue of, for example, defining what what a war crime is. So, is there any like what kind of law is actually the foundation of that? And who defines these laws? I think it's somehow intertwined with human rights, for example. But like, yeah. yeah, obviously, criminal law is is a field in itself, and human rights is another field of law in in itself. But both of them are quite intertwined because at the end you are punishing people and you have to take also the rights of the offenders into account. So human rights will also like have a role to play in this perspective and you also have to take the victim's human rights in, in, into account. And so both fields actually work together. And yeah, who who is basically determining the the human rights for example or, or these laws so you find human rights in constitutions of every almost every uh nations so for instance germany has its own constitution with its own list of fundamental rights you have switzerland with its own list of fundamental rights etc but for instance at the european level you also can find the european convention of human rights which was signed uh which was created uh, by the european council and not the European Union. So you also have a list there and which will also apply on a national level. So for instance, in Germany, you have the German constitution with the list of fundamental rights. And then you also have the European Convention of Human Rights with the list of fundamental rights, which will also apply in Germany. Short disclaimer from post-production. Whenever we speak about the European Council in the next couple of minutes, we actually mean the Council of Europe and somewhat confusingly, these two are actually completely different institutions. So they kind of yeah have to add up to to determine what human rights people in, in view, for example, in Germany have. And sometimes, I guess there are clashes. You mentioned the European Council. I think the distinction is, or it wasn't too clear to me that there's a, like a fundamental difference between the EU and the European Council, especially because of two countries that are part of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the European Union, so you have the 27 members, like the UK was the 28th, but it's not here anymore. And the European Council is um, it, like you have 47 members 
and for instance members which will you will find the European Union and not the European Council will be like Switzerland, the USA, but you also have Turkey and Russia, for instance, which are in the European Council and have to apply the uh, European um, Convention of Human Rights. And yeah, that's it. So you you also like you have this difference. You have twenty countries which are not in the European Union, so in the EU, but are in the Council. What are the advantages of of being part of that council? Like, because it, it seems council, like its main aim, uh, if I'm correct, was about human rights. But you can also find other conventions with the which the council uh, adopted. Like uh, there is the Convention of Budapest on uh, cybercrime. But the main aim and the main instruments of the European Council were the. Convention of Human Rights, so the European Convention of Human Rights, and the European Court of Human Rights. So, like on the national level, for instance, you will have these regional tribunals. Uh, like, if your fundamental rights are infringed, you can go to a regional tribunal, and then you will go to a federal tribunal, so the Supreme Court. And then, if the outcome is not satisfactory, you can go to the European Convention of Human Rights, which is the last court, uh, the European Court. Of human rights which is the last court uh, to which you can you, you can go to, to to present your case and the advantage like the, the it's not about advantage it's more about differences the european union was really about internal market so you have the free movement of goods and persons within the european borders like for instance between spain and portugal but with the european council you don't have such thing you, you don't have this internal market thing with the with with the with the free movement of things and goods. You you mainly have this, and what is the most known thing is the European Convention of Human Rights. Yeah. And as you mentioned at, at a different point, yeah, they're the the main people responsible for going against this Convention of Human Rights are probably Turkey and. And Russia, so you mentioned there are a couple of cases against them. Oh, that's like the, the main reason. So I was wondering whether Turkey, uh, why Turkey and Russia are actually part of this, if or if, if it has like some historical dimension that they've been part of that for quite some time and now it's really more going against their... Yeah, good question. Actually, the thing is that apart from the law and the conventions themselves, you have a whole political view so sometimes countries will just accept to be part of an organization for a political purpose more than anything. And I know that Turkey maybe only used to, I don't know if it still wants to be part of the EU. And I don't know if it was a move to actually um, present itself as a valid candidate for the EU. I'm not sure at all. But actually, it's a good question because at the end, you have cases at the European Convention against maybe the 47 countries which are member of the European Council. However, it's true that Turkey and Russia have, you know, like a lot of cases about uh, freedom of the press and uh, freedom of prisoners and this kind of, you know, like known issues in those countries. But I don't know why specifically they decided to accept being part of these conventions. That's actually a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think 
Brexit brought it to our collective attention that leaving these kind of things is possible as well. <laughs> and Brexit yeah. didn't like uh, the UK did not leave the European Council. They're still part of the European Convention of Human yeah. Rights. They left yeah. the EU, but yeah. they are still applying just... human rights, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th I meant it more as a general comment that yeah, yes, yeah. It, it felt like this tendency of, of history moving in that one direction of more transnational structure and more like international collaboration and Brexit kind of put put the... the that's the whole issue with international law. It's that you cannot force a country to be part of anything. It has to be like it has to be a volunteer participation to the convention. So the the whole issue with international law, and that's why even some people say that international law by itself do not exist, is that you need unanimity between countries for that. You cannot force any anyone to do anything. Yeah. And sometimes countries just leave and they come back, and sometimes they come and stay forever. And I think politics in the last couple of years was really defined by this swing back towards nationalism and populism in the European countries, in the US, obviously, yeah. and in the UK. So yeah, it, it puts into question like what is actually the the best structure for organizing law and economy and all these kind of things. Yes, oh. yes. That's why you have lots of conventions and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but... They are some countries are trying on their side to actually uh, sign conventions with other country or countries, so it can be bilateral or multilateral. And sometimes they just do it as a group, like the EU does. Yeah, one point you also mentioned is I think that the death penalty in itself goes against this Charter of Human Rights defined by the European Council. Yeah, the because by itself there are not a lot of or like you don't have an absolute fundamental right except the right to live so death penalty is an absolute no-go in the european countries so that that's actually one of the one of the um, one of the issues one may have or not an issue by itself actually but you know when uh, there is extradition which are in question so when someone um when an offender commits punishable act and for instance he is in in germany and the u.s want uh, want this offender to to be in the u.s however germany knows that in the u.s this kind of act is punishable by death penalty so germany will not uh deliver this person to the u.s because actually the european convention of human rights uh doesn't allow such acts It's completely forbidden in, at the European level, or not at the European level, but in the European Council to, within the, the member states of the European Council to have a death penalty sanction. I guess the most visible case of this was Julian Assange, or who is still in the UK. Yeah. And yeah, there was very reasonable doubt that he would be treated well, especially after the leaks of the CIA yeah. wanting to kill him, even in the UK. Yeah, so you have this obstacle let's say to extradition for instance which happens to have its core somehow in the european convention of human rights yeah but it's interesting then that the us is also part of this convention the the us if i'm not wrong is not part 
of the council, but it's an observer. Okay. Like you have some observer countries, like you know, in the UN, you have all the of the member states of the UN, and then you have the Vatican, which is only an observer. It's not actually participating in the UN, and the the USA are actually doing the same, but at the European Council. Okay. So they are <laughs> not part of the European Convention, but they they are an observer in the Council. If I'm not wrong, they are an observer. Yeah, maybe a related question in in this regard is. You mentioned there are no fundamental rights except the right to live. So like, how do we even determine which crimes are universally punished and how would we determine like a hierarchy between them? So also this example of some people, it's it's okay to kill because it's war, but some people then it's a war crime. So like, how do we actually define these things? Yeah, actually, you know, it's, uh, it's quite easy to say that petty theft is not as serious as murder. But the, the, the issue would be when you have to make a difference between um yeah between two type of of homicides like which one goes in which box and how do we categorize them and the thing is that most countries in europe if not all uh have this universal competence in criminal law which means that even if a person is not related at all if even if the crime of a person is not related at all to a country they can be punished by this country. For instance, if taking Switzerland uh, as it's my home country, but if you commit a crime in Germany and come to Switzerland, Switzerland can punish you for this specific crime. But the question will be how to define which crimes can be universally uh, punishable and which crimes are not. So genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes are all punishable in a universal way, because there are also conventions about them. But for instance, in Switzerland, we have a huge, not that huge, but we have a list of crimes uh, which can be universally punishable. For instance, um, genital mutilation is universally punishable in Switzerland. So even if it was not committed in Switzerland, uh, if the person actually is in Switzerland, they can be punished for something they did elsewhere. Even if the person is not Swiss, if even if the victim is not Swiss, they can be punished in Switzerland. And the, the question which arises from there is how to categorize and hierarchize these crimes, because what we consider to be universally punishable is the worst crimes that we know. So how to determine that a crime is so serious that we can universally polish it. For instance, in Switzerland, there is this thing where um, sexual intercourse with a minor under 16 is punishable on the national level. However, um, sexual intercourse with a minor under 14 is punishable on a universal level too. So why 14 and not 16? And we have to categorize them and to determine why one and not the other. And this yeah. issue is actually with all the countries which use a universal competence. It also connects a little bit to the podcast we recorded with Trik, where we mm -hmm. talked about this, um, yeah, time limitations and this whole idea of like, when is a crime actually, when can, can you not punish a person for a certain crime anymore? And where do you get the hierarchy in this place? Because we also had this issue of, yeah, then there being no time limitations on sexual assault mm -hmm. against minors and in other cases, like even for murder, you have the, these time limitations. So you have this implicit hierarchy, but 
it could be very different. I think, yeah, many crimes are probably not, you can't make an easy case that murder is like, it's socially construed that murder is, is bad or something. It, it seems to be very universally held in yeah. our societies, but then in other cases, it gets a bit more tricky. Because um, what, what popped into my mind were these pretty frequent executions of, of drug smugglers in, in Singapore, for example, mm-hmm. where countries have very different drug policies. And I guess it doesn't really fully apply because people were smuggling heroin, for example, into Singapore. So it actually falls under the jurisdiction of, of Singapore. But it always seems a bit crazy that like Australians, for example, then get executed in Singapore for something. Yeah, then you also have this whole political view on on if someone is that important or not, then you have immunity. So you have this whole questions which come into into account and make the situation even harder than it already is just to assess who can be punished in which country. Do you know if there are actually many cases of that, for example, in Switzerland, are there, are there any famous examples of of there being coalitions of, of interest where like international people were actually punished in Switzerland for something they did somewhere else? Uh, we have one. On, I think it's we only have one case of uh, mutual de- de- Gen- genital mutilations. Okay, we have one case of, mutu- of genital mutilations in Switzerland, which is, I mean, quite famous. Actually, we, we studied it a lot in law school. Is that a man from, um, I think, West of Africa came to Switzerland to live in Switzerland. And um, I think he, he, like, because he got into a dispute with his, a fight with his wife, he actually... The wife was arrested for mutual okay i will just begin again because i lost myself <laughs> so you have this case of genital mutilation which is the only case of mutual genital mutilation that we know in switzerland it's hard uh <laughs> that we have in switzerland and uh yeah so the the, the offenders were from somalia if i'm not wrong or yeah, I think it was Somalia, and they committed the crime, which is regarded as a crime in Switzerland. So we do not care if it's a crime in Somalia. So it is the thing is that they brought their daughters, so the victims in Switzerland, and the the daughters um, were genitally mutilated. So they were punished for mutual geni- genital mutilation in Switzerland, even though yeah. the act was against uh, non-Swiss persons on a non-Swiss territory uh, and by a non-Swiss perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So we have this case of genital mutilation. We also had another case which did not go all the way through, uh, was when a former Algerian minister came to Switzerland and was arrested in Switzerland for the crimes committed in Al- Algeria at the time. So he was not a minister when he was arrested in Switzerland. But uh, this case is still pending because it went to the the Federal Criminal Court of Switzerland, which said that it was not, Switzerland was not competent for this case. But then it also went to the Federal Court, which said that we have to review the jurisdiction of Switzerland in this particular case, because actually it might be. So he was... Uh, I think it was um, he committed crimes against humanity, if I'm not wrong. 
So he was arrested for that. And uh, yeah, he was arrested for crimes against humanity perpetrated on Algerian victims in Algeria. So not related to Switzerland at all, but arrested in Switzerland, in Geneva. Yeah. And, and actually, Switzerland has been criticated uh, the, by, by the UN, if I'm not wrong, because actually we have this system of universal competence, but we do not use it that much. And also the issue is political issues. Like what are your political relations with another country if all of a sudden you, uh, you will prosecute uh, an, a member of their country, like a former minister or a former part of the government or anyway. Yeah, seems to pretty obviously lead to some conflicts in like competence and yeah, it seems like you're morally putting yourself into kind of a superior position if you if you claim you have the right to judge people. Yeah, because what countries like countries are sovereign in their own. That's why I said international law really depends on countries because they are sovereign to to accept or not to be part of the convention, of a convention in general. So the countries are also sovereign in their own territory, so they have the right to assess who and for what someone can be punished. Really, the criminal aspects of each and every country is very um, personal to this country, and even at a European level, the like for instance, you don't have a European criminal court because countries do not want to give up on this authority to actually punish people on their territories. So when a country comes and says, okay, according to my law, I can punish the, the, your resident or your national, even though the, the crime he or she committed don't have anything to do uh, with my country. So it can be quite problematic about each and every country's sovereignty. Yeah. Because in this case, you go to, I don't know, Russia, and all of a sudden you're, you're punished for something you did in, in Spain. And then the, it raises a lot of question of how a country can put themselves in this position to actually punish someone else who is not related at all to the country and whose crime is not related at all to the country. Yeah, to I guess, take a slight tangent here. I find it quite interesting in general, like the, these questions of moral relativism and how you can actually define a law in an objective perspective. And there's obviously among moral philosophers, especially and philosophers of law, this um, whole conversation about yeah, how can we actually define this in an objective sense and what are what is the foundation on which, uh, what kind of assumptions do we have to put in into the fact that we can judge people? And there's like public figures like Robert Sapolsky, for example. I don't know if you heard about him. He's mm -mm. A, like a neuroscientist from, from Stanford that argues that this whole idea of, of punishment, again, is also intertwined with free will and that modern neuroscience really shows us that these concepts of free will have to be thought about like in a very different way. And then you have like this genetic components, for example, and in, in the US and in, in the death uh, death tract of, of these prisons, I think like 30 to 40% of inmates suffered like some kind of traumatic head injury during their childhood. So you have some very obvious co correlations between 
like what people experience in their life and the crimes they commit. So this whole idea of, of punishment still kind of more rooted in, in previous centuries than very much aligned with, with modern science. So then it becomes yeah, quite tricky to, to think of. Yeah. Yes, yeah. because also then until where can we go? Because it means that if it's like if someone committed a crime because of their childhood, then should we also punish the parents? Like no. I, I think I yeah I heard of the of this uh, of the uh, of this research and it was quite interesting, but yeah the it also rose this question of until where can we go? Like in the in the whole path of how this person became the person they are. Like, and so where can we go to punish this person? And like, who should we punish for that then? Yeah. So, so that's why in general, in criminal law, you, you just, yeah, you have to punish the person who did, who committed the act. And yeah. then there is this whole idea of what surrounded the act, which has to be taken into account. Yeah, there's also some fascinating research on, on this question of responsibility which seems to be more centered in, in in a Western approach to kind of also rooted in the individualistic thinking of like a person can plan and is a moral agent and can be responsible for a crime by premeditating it or can be irresponsible because it was an accident. But mm -hmm. in other cultures there, uh, you don't even really have, have this strong distinction between premeditated and accidental killings. So kind of like, um, I don't know what it what it is in, in English, like the difference between murder and in, term, in German, we say Totschlag, like... Yeah, involuntary yeah. homicide. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, you, you, in some countries, you don't really have this distinction, which also makes it hard because the criminal law, what is quite also special about this field, is that you really have to take the mindset of a person into account to to say if they are um if they are responsible for the crime or not or what happened in their head and how to define the crime regarding to what happened in their mindset when when they did it so so actually not making the difference is kind of tricky too and it's very hard because it's easier obviously to say that every murder is a murder and we do not care if it was a passionate murder or if it was an an accident or anything but then at the end, we just punish everyone in the same way, even though the acts in themselves are, are different. And it's very tricky. Yeah, from, from my intuition, I would completely agree that the, the intention really matters and it, it seems a bit strange to us. But yeah, there's this research by, by Joe Henrich. He coined this term weird people. I, th I don't know if you know that, this idea that like more studies of, of modern psychology and are really done with weird people, which are white, um, educated, intelligent. I'm not sure what the entire definition is, but like you have a very specific subsample of, of cultural heritage. Yeah. Western, obviously. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> yeah, that's, it, it seems a bit tricky to, to me. If, if you think about putting international laws in place, then like from from whose perspective you you are defining these international laws, and it seems well. Usually, international yeah. law is is created by Western countries, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's almost laughs> <trying>. <laughs> if you're not from the western world like everything seems abnormal to you not everything mm -hmm. but a lot of things yeah. can seem abnormal because not the whole world share the same values and the same perspectives on every topic and yeah that's that's also what makes a lot of things tricky about the law is that sometimes it's the when you read a legal text a legal convention obviously a convention is legal but when you read a convention you um like some articles will be uh, phrased so broadly that at the end uh, each and every country will just interpret it as they want and you will have different interpretations all around the world yeah. because you like you we cannot agree on everything because we do not share the same perspectives and the same values with every other country and even among people that are interpreting the text there's also the challenge of, of different interpretations yeah. yes <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's quite a tricky field it's a long way to go. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so maybe we can slowly move on at this point we still mm -hmm. have a couple of other issues to talk about yeah you're doing your bachelor and master thesis you you also looked at, at the general topic of, of discrimination i think mm -hmm. both in with respect to people with disabilities but also in the topic of indirect discrimination of women so i don't know if, where you want to start or if you have any any place to start in but yeah what is like, <laughs> some of the general things you looked at so in general, discrimination known in, in Europe. So let's talk about Europe in, in general, not the EU uh, and the European Convention of Human Rights, because those are the two fundamental texts, like the European Convention and the list of fundamental rights of every nation are the two fundamental texts which will protect fundamental rights. And uh, the thing that you will find in both constitutional text and convention is the interdict in the is the prohibition of discrimination however as said before for about fundamental rights in general there is no absolute fundamental right so you do not have an absolute right not to be discriminated and in general like in life you are discriminated for a lot of reasons but it's not as serious as to be brought in court like, for instance, if in the bus you have a seat for disabled persons and for pregnant women, it's basically like if you read the definition of discrimination, literally, it's, it's, it will be a discrimination. However, it is not serious to the point of going to court because you went on the bus and you were so unhappy about the seat on this bus because you could not like you cannot sit somewhere because it was for uh, disabled, for, for a person with disabilities. And so fundamental rights in general it are not absolute. So you can have, uh, like your fundamental right can be touched by itself, but to determine if it's a breach of fundamental right, you have to go through this process and like to make all these tests uh, to assess if it's a breach or not. So uh, is there a legal basis for this dis discrimination per se? Is there uh, uh, a public or private interest to discriminate? Is there 
like if, is this act proportionate to to its objective etc etc so you have to assess this whole test and to respect this whole test to actually determine if there's an infringement or not so discrimination is not absolute but it's still protected in in the in the constitutional texts and in the european convention of human rights and uh so when i worked on women during my bachelor so it was indirect discrimination against women so what is tricky about discrimination is that when it's direct, you see it. Like if you go to a restaurant and they tell you like um, people with brown hair cannot come to this restaurant, you know it's discrimination. However, sometimes what happens is that you can have a legal text, like a law is adopted. And when you read it, it applies to everyone. However, uh, in practice, it will affect a certain group of persons. So especially about women, uh, for, for instance, in Switzerland, uh, there was this case uh, with, um, so it's an internal, uh, internal rules within a company. So you, you to have like, you have a report every year on every employee. And to get this report, you have to work a minimum uh, days in the year, so a minimum days in the 365 days of the year. However, if so, if you do not fulfill these days, you cannot get the report, and if you do not get the report, you cannot get a pay raise. However, uh, in the law, a woman who is pregnant can take uh, who 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 actually uh, yeah who is pregnant can take uh, like vacancies, obviously. However these days of vacancies are much higher than the, the, the days for the report to get a pay raise. So at the end, in this case, a woman actually took vacancies for because she gave birth and a report and then a pay raise were refused to her because, uh, because she did not get like the minimum of days for the report. But Actually, she had the right to to take vacancies for her because she gave birth. And the whole idea was in this indirect discrimination was that in the rules, if I tell you, oh, you have to be here for minimum 200 days in the year, like it seems normal and it seems OK, it, it will be applicable for everyone, both men and women, no matter who, who you are, like it will be applicable to you. So it's fine. There is no discrimination issue with this law. However, when it applies, we discover that women who uh, give birth cannot fill in this law because uh, the days they have the right to take for vacancies when giving birth are much higher than uh, the dates that you you need for the report like much higher so you miss a lot of days which so you do not fill the report and it was this issue of indirect discrimination and you find that in actually a lot of laws, you can find it. However, it's not assessed because, as I said, you have to go through this whole test to 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 see if a fundamental right has really been infringed or not. Okay. So that's what's tricky with indirect discrimination. Uh, then, as you said, during my master, I also studied on the right of people with disabilities. And in particular, I studied I wrote my, my thesis on the right of children with disabilities to access education. 
And the so it was really on a national level, so in Switzerland. So um, the thing was that when you have a disability, you have the right to certain uh, to certain measures to actually be able to 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 go to school with the other kids. However, to a certain point, we will assess that you cannot go to school with the other kids, so we will put you in a special school. But if you go to this special school, for instance, you do not get the same certification than people who went to the ordinary school. And you have this whole issue also around that, how we actually make this distinction between the two of them, like ordinary school and specialized school, and how actually it will or not infringe the principles of non-discrimination, which happen to be in the, Internet, the European Convention of Human Rights on Swiss uh, constitutional law, and also on the convention, uh, the UN Convention of People for People with Disabilities. Yeah, you, you mentioned at one point that if you have this case, for example, of a company not giving this pay raise to a woman that was pregnant and couldn't and fill in the duty of, of her days, then you cannot really sue the company for discrimination, but you have to see if there's a law that would prohibit the company to do something like that. And if there's no such law, then the company is not to blame. So basically the state has to change its law structure and try to enforce that this discrimination isn't taking place. Yes, exactly. So what happens regarding fundamental rights is that um, usually, so fundamental rights, as they are written in the constitution, are applicable to the state and not to individuals per se. So the state has to enforce those fundamental rights within its territory. Uh, so, for instance, you will find laws in Switzerland and I guess in, in other countries, like and even in the European level with the EU, uh, which will prohibit to make a to, to have a wage gap between men and women for the same for, for the same profession. And we also have it in Switzerland. We also have a law which specifically um, uh, does not allow companies to make this difference between men and women regarding uh, their wages. However, like you do not have laws for every single thing. And also, as I said, fundamental rights uh, are like state is obliged to compel to fundamental rights, but not individuals. So if you have an issue regarding your fundamental rights and you go to the convention, uh, to, you go to the European Court uh, of Human Rights, you will go against your country. You will not go against an individual. So you will complain in the court that actually the state did not take the appropriate measure to, to make sure that your fundamental rights would be respected. So that is when you go to the European court. That sounds like quite a stressful experience for, for an individual. So yeah, it's... Are these cases usually <laughs> like done by larger groups. It's also very long because you have to go through the regional court and then through a Supreme Court and then to the European Court. So you, you have to take all the steps and it's very long to actually get an outcome. So are these cases then usually fought by like larger groups of, of people that come together to... No, you even have individuals which who go to the courts. Interesting. Are there like, uh, also some, some famous cases in, in recent times? I don't know, probably you know most about Switzerland. 
Yeah, in Switzerland, there was this recent case in Geneva. It was a few years ago. So there is this fundamental right which will allow you to um, uh, to run a business, let's say, like in general, run a business. So just earn your own money. So you have the right to earn your own money. And in Geneva, what they did is that they would find people who would ask for money in the streets. So who would beg for money? And um, uh, so they get fined. So like you beg for money and then you get fined because you do it and it's prohibited by the by the law in Geneva. And uh, this case so went to the Genevan court. The Genevan court said, no, the state has the right to actually find those persons. Then it went to the Supreme Court, which said the same thing. And finally, it went to the European Court of Human Rights, which said, actually, it's a fundamental right to earn the money how you want to earn it. So they give, uh, actually, the, the outcome was that those people had the right to ask for money this way and that their, funda their fundamental right was infringed by the law in Geneva. And it took quite a long time to actually come to the European court. And I, re I still remember when, when it came out, like everyone would talk about it. Yeah. Also quite a surprising outcome. Yeah, it was. <laughs> also a little bit of some some discussions around that during the COVID pandemic, especially because so many businesses were limited in their ability to kind of yeah, run their business, especially in the, in the mm. gastronomical sector. And yeah, there was also this always this trade-off between yeah, what are the individual's rights during the pandemic and how they are they infringed upon by this need to to react on a on a global or like on a national yeah, level the pandemic really brought maybe not new but um maybe not new and not unique but it's quite seldom to have this kind of cases before the before any court or like to it's it's not every day that you have a pandemic which all of a sudden you know like arises and you had all this issue which which came and then you had to assess can the state actually adopt this kind of measure? And and today we have we, we have this question about the vaccine, because you have a lot of places which uh, will because the the state asks for it, but a lot of places to go to university sometimes you need to to get vaccinated or to have a COVID certificate. And until when and until where can we go with this kind of laws? Because for instance, in the university cases, it means that. Uh, to go to university, you have to be tested every two, three days. But now the tests, you have to pay for them. So you have to pay for tests every three days to actually go to university and follow your classes. So it raises a lot of issues. And also for restaurants, because then if you need a COVID certificate every time, then maybe you will have less customers because people do not have the means nor want to go and get tested every three days to, to go to the restaurant. Yeah, sounds a bit reminiscent of the discussion we had in Germany about yeah, smoking in restaurants, smoking in bars, because mm. it basically seems also under the jurisdiction of the person running the bar to, to determine whether people have to be vaccinated and are smoking, mm -hmm. kind of to, to which, which health risk they are allowed to. Yeah, it raises a lot of legal questions. Yeah, probably 
a lot of them are not resolved yet. It seems like the cost. Well, it's quite recent. And as we saw, like it can take you years to actually get a, an answer from a court, like to, to, to reach the point where you get an answer from a final court, so final decision. So maybe we will get answers in, in, in a couple of years, not tomorrow, but in a couple of years. Yeah. And Germany during the lockdowns, especially during the second season of lockdowns in winter, there was a lot of people also like, um, yeah, going in front of court with these like, fast paced like, Antrag, we say in German. And yeah, then that actually changes things in, in the shorter run than like some some court in, in, in my home state actually determined that the lockdown was wasn't like really necessary anymore and he overruled what the politicians said and then suddenly from one day to the next we didn't have a lockdown anymore. It's quite <laughs> quite complex and, and confusing. It is, it is. But in a lot of countries it's still not assessed until where the the state can go with, with these laws. Because sometimes, like in France, you had the lockdown, like you, you did not even have, like you had the lockdown, but also like since from 6 to, from 6 p.m. to I don't know when in the morning, you did not have the right to go out. So, so sometimes you had like those kind of extreme measures, let's say, like some can see them as extreme, some can see them as necessary, it really depends. Uh, and, and you have to assess, is it proportionate? Is it ne really necessary? Can we really do that regarding to fundamental rights? Can we really tell people not to go out of their houses? So it really raises a lot of questions. Yeah. And many of the effects, I think not really specifically in Germany, but in the US, some of the effects were extremely irreversible. Like an insane portion of, of small companies actually went bankrupt. Yeah. Like I think two thirds of the restaurants in the country like in Germany, we had subsidies and everything survived and you don't see a difference at all to the last one and a half years. But in the US, it's really profound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you, not only in the US, you have many, many countries where actually you have mm. businesses, or also businesses which launched just before the COVID and all of a sudden they had to, to close. So it was restful for them to... Yeah, maybe going back to the discrimination topic, there's also... I think on everyone's mind, it was a huge topic in, in recent times for the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd, this whole idea of, of institutional discrimination and these, like, these biases within certain structures and states. So there are also some countermeasures in Germany. We are also still currently discussing the like certain quotas for how many females you have to have in, in companies and in the the leadership of, of certain companies and also as representation in in politics and then you have ideas like affirmative action in the us so it's always quite tricky to yeah then assess how, how well they are actually working so i don't know maybe we can talk about this a little bit as well yeah it's quite tricky because for instance for affirmative action if i'm not wrong they adopted it for an ivy league university for the for the entrance exam and they realized that actually, since the entrance exam was made by white male, uh, which have a certain social standing, uh, then those who will succeed the exam the most were the persons in the same group of those who actually made the exam. So they thought that they would um, 
make a difference in the in the correcting and the assessing points of the exam for people of colors and etc so you had for instance a white person who got uh, 80 points on on 100 and who was not picked for for in the in this Ivy League who was rejected by the Ivy League and then you have a black person who grew up in I don't know which neighborhood in the US and who and who had like who has a 70 point score and who get accepted by the Ivy League and you had this whole question of is it fair to actually accept a person with a lower score than another and how is the person because the person who took the, the exam and got 80 80 points out of 100 but was rejected is actually not responsible for the the social context which put put the the this black person in a situation where she would get less points in the exam because of her skin color so is it fair for this person to suffer the um, uh to suffer the consequences of this social context or not. So you have this question for affirmative actions, but also at the same time, is it fair for this black person to be uh, to be judged as another person who has an absolutely other social context and who who actually is closer to the examinator in terms of thinking and in terms of um, developing ideas. How did I begin? <laughs> like, is it fair? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have the fairness question in general for both of them, but also it will. It also gives an opportunity for other persons to 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 get into these Ivy Leagues, which can seem to be so unreachable because of the because of the standing you need to have to 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 access them. So you have. Uh, you, you have that for affirmative action and regarding quotas it's about yeah like, like you said like you need 40 percent of women in this company in, in every company which hire more than i don't know like 100 percent you need 30 40 percent at least of women and then you have people who will ask the question yeah but does that mean that you will employ a woman just to fill the quota or do you employ a woman because she's skilled enough to be employed. So I, I think it's not, um, it's still not really assessed how fair it can be or how fair it is. However, as we have seen it, like it has some results. So at the end, we, we have some companies who hire more women that, than before because social constructs uh, made them indirectly believe that when they when they see a woman coming to the interview, maybe she will you know just leave the job because she she will be pregnant at some point, or because she will get married and and leave the country. Blah blah blah. You have all this social assumptions and presumption that about women or about any other minority, which affected the interviews. And because of quotas and affirmative action, we can somehow curve them. But then is it fair for everyone? Then how is it really done? How do we assess that uh, this quota? So how do we assess that 40% is the correct number? How do we assess that 
this way of correcting correcting exams for Ivy Leagues is the correct way to for for to to accept students in the school. So you have all these questions of how it's done. Uh, in French, we say en amont. So how it's done before the the action itself. How how did we think it before adopting the action? Yeah, it seems quite the conundrum that I think in front of the law we we have the ambition to to have everyone given equal rights and no discrimination taking place, but you obviously have this historical baggage of of discrimination that can go back quite a long time. And obviously, with with your French example of women's right to votes, like less than thirty years ago, that's pretty <laughs> absurd <laughs> if you think about it. That there was some obviously some structural discrimination and with the American history of slavery, you also mm -hmm. see still a lot of leftovers of these deeply ingrained structures. Yeah. But then to, to counter that by kind of reversing discrimination in, in a different way, and then you have people with different results um, or with similar results getting different outcomes when it comes to applying to the Ivy League colleges. So who is actually responsible for like dealing with that past discriminatory baggage? quite tricky and then i mean there's like a huge huge set of, of obvious problems and things you could discuss in this context so we're probably not going to cover that <laughs> in, in full detail that even this idea of, of um people coming into companies or into ivy league colleges based on quotas and affirmative action obviously opens the door to to this whole idea of this person is only here because of that quota this person is only here because it, affirmative action and that leads to its own kind of discrimination that you actually want to get rid of because then you assume they they have a worse score than you and that yeah 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 it's kind of tricky because actually in the law you also have this aspect of equality and non-discrimination is not only about having the exact same thing as another but also taking into account every and each difference that can be between people To, to make the balance equal. For instance, women have maternity leave, like pregnant when giving birth, I mean, I mean not, uh, not maternity and paternity leave. So they have maternity leave when giving birth per se, that men cannot have because they do not give birth. So they do not need the rest that a woman needs. However, at the end, you have women who have maternity leave and can stay with their children, but fathers cannot in certain countries so when the father has a child he cannot take vacancies for to take care of his child but women can so how do we assess what is because it's actually fair for women to have insurance for maternity and stuff like that because she is the one who carries the child etc and we can get the and understand the difference between men and women on this point which is part of The, the fundamental right of non-discrimination, like it's accepted in, in this principle, but also you have those, I'm, I'm not going to say abuse, but you will have those tricky way of turning the things. So for instance, in Switzerland, fathers do not really have paternity leave, so they cannot stay with, it, with their child. And is it fair on this point, like on the point of non-discrimination to actually allow a woman and not, not a man so the yeah. law gives you f some leeway to to make this difference but yeah and so and then you have other issues like the paternity leave but the law in itself gives you leeway to take into account that there is difference between different group of people 
and then take the appropriate measures to actually make the balance more even. Yeah, it's also interesting what kind of differences our society considers to be worth worthy considering. So I think you have this whole idea of intersectionality that people are defined by different characteristics and that you basically have arbitrary lines that you can put through like how, how you actually classify people. And one perspective that I find I find extremely crucial in how our societies operate, especially in the Western world, is this whole question of intelligence and industriousness. So these like top predictors for success in school, for example, and for academic success and success in the job market, which are things where our society obviously discriminates from a very early age. In Germany, we have this, we have like elementary school and after elementary school in fourth grade, we basically have tests and then we classify children into three groups. So you have the upper, middle and lower, lower school, and then you basically determine their career for the rest of their life. But we, we seem to think it's fair and we don't discriminate against them because it's based on like competence and intelligence and maybe like how how good you are at functioning in our society. So we we obviously don't have the ambition to to not discriminate. Even the whole idea of entering Ivy League based on, on a test result discriminates between the people that have good and bad tests. So mm -hmm. I don't think we even have the ambition to to build a society that doesn't discriminate. But we basically pick out certain like things where we think it's okay and certain where we don't think it's okay. But it's quite good. Yeah, because at the end we we have such in Europe we have such multicultural societies and like with different perspectives and you know like you have different value than your neighbor and you have different aspects of life than your neighbor that actually we are in groups. So objectively speaking, you can make a difference between different persons in the streets. However, so so you have differences, but at the end you will also have a group who which has privilege for, regarding another, and they did not decide to have privilege, and the other group did not decide not to have privilege, uh, and then so we are in an an equal in an equal society by such, and the law should. Uh, by its use, just put back the balance by taking the advantages and inadvantages which already exist and just balance them to to in in sort of giving the same um, chances for both groups so they can live in the same way basically and have the mm -hmm. same rights and have the the same opportunities how it's still a question but <laughs> yeah i think it will probably remain a question as <laughs> yeah. we also discussed things are changing too fast to yeah to keep pace Basically, exactly even have ideas like rights for ai and these kind of things coming in yes uh, yeah all the digital aspects of of life because digitalization of the world is more and more prominent so we also have to take this into account and new laws and new regulations will arise and then you will have to assess if it's fair or not if you can apply it or not if it's not too much or not enough and yeah i mean we will always have subjects of discussions regarding the law because you always have new topics and new trends and 
new like things evolve and you have to evolve with it and with with the jurisdiction of of social media we saw that again the law was lagging behind a little bit because yeah technology was mm -hmm. really moving too fast yeah because of all this bureaucracy in <laughs> which you do not yeah. allow us to, to 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 go fast enough yeah yeah the companies are moving a bit quicker <laughs> we're recording this in in google google chrome so <laughs> we shouldn't be too critical <laughs> yeah maybe we can also move on to to some meta questions um about yeah if you have any favorite books also about law but also not about law i always find that very interesting well personally i i read a lot of law books but for my courses when i go home and i have to read my own book uh i have to say that i prefer to to read something else and i think the most recent book i i, I read and which i really liked uh was written in french so it's called uh, Identité Meurtrière in French, which is uh, Mortal Identities, maybe in English. I don't know. I, I think there is a translation, but uh, I do not have it uh, like in mind. It's by Amin Malouf. And it's basically a story. And it's not a story, but the author is uh, was born in... Uh, okay. Was born in Liban. I don't know how to say it in English. Um, Lebanon. Lebanon, yes. I was saying it in French for no reason. So he was born <laughs> in Lebanon, and actually he came to France, and he talks about, you know, this the, the, the difference in culture you have between France and Lebanon, and how actually you have some countries where, you know, you have some nationalists who want to make one identity, so you're either French or you're nothing. You're either German or you're nothing. You cannot be German and uh Moroccan. you cannot be german and russian you have to be only german you have to be only swiss and he talks about how our identities actually have you know like you have different aspects of identity and that actually they can all grab it together and you do not have to make this distinction between all of these identities and where like that's why he called his book the the mortal identities and i found it very interesting because myself uh, i am originated for a north african country and i was born in switzerland so actually i lived in switzerland but with a north african uh, background and sometimes it could have been you know like difficult to actually balance between two cultures which are very different but i think this yeah this book like really puts into words this situation when you have this clash of culture and it's very interesting It's not a story. It's not like a fan fiction or anything. It's just the author talking about his thoughts, which are super interesting. Yeah, nice. <laughs> it's quite, I think there's always this ambition if, you, if you're shaping out a nationalistic identity to kind of um, yeah, force that duality between in-group, out-group. And you, you usually tend to have like an enemy that you specifically pick out to to make your in-group stronger in Germany. During Nazi Germany, we had the Jewish population and the, yeah, yet the Armenians in, in Turkey and like a lot of genocides tend to, to also start like that, that yeah. duality. <laughs> so it's, it's a very useful counterforce to, to move away from that dualistic tendency. I think it's, it's just so deeply ingrained in, in human 
the human psyche that we are, we constantly have to struggle basically uphill to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's also like interesting because more and more you have people coming from all over the world to like people are moving from countries to countries. It's so easy to take a plane and to go to the other part of the world. So at the end, you, you can be in the depth of Asia and find uh, a North American person just there, like doing his life. Yeah. And w with the word, how, how, yeah, how we have the word today, it's easy to, to have, you know, like this clash of cultures and easy to, 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 to find yourself in a situation where you just don't understand what's going on because it's not what you're used to. But it doesn't also mean that you are bound to not understanding anything and not to evolve. I think that might be a nice note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thanks a lot for joining us today. And Thank you for having me. I really me. enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you.